Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. The problems exist or occur if we dive into um, a coping behavior, which is not adequate to the present situation because something from the past intrudes. That was Dr. Eckhart Rodiger on Psychologist Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, everyone. Before we get started today, we wanted to just make a quick plug. We have a new feature, which is that we are set up as Amazon affiliates. And so a great way to support our podcast would be to click on our website to make any purchases you're planning to make on Amazon. We have a little icon. You can just start there. You can also link to different books that we mentioned through Amazon, and it will help support the finances of our podcast. It's been a bit of a labor of love, and this will help us cover some of our expenses and that kind of thing. Thank you. And in this episode, we are introducing a new feature. We have segments now called Clinician's Corner. And these are episodes that are really geared a bit more to clinicians, where we're going to delve deeper into some treatments with experts in those treatment approaches. Um, It'll give clinicians the opportunity to discover new treatments or learn a bit more about treatments they're already familiar with. And so we tend to feature evidence-based practices, and hopefully the clinicians in our audience will find them helpful. Awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited about this new segment that we have, and I'm particularly excited about this first episode. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Eckhart Rodiger, who's an expert in schema therapy, and he recently came out with a book called Contextual Schema Therapy, an Integrative Approach to Personality Disorders, Emotional Dysregulation, and Interpersonal Functioning with his co-authors, Bruce Stevens and Robert Brockman. Um, And I have long been fascinated and intrigued by schema therapy because I think it's really a nice um, joining of CBT kinds of approaches to treating clinical disorders with a more traditionally psychoanalytic approaches. Whereas CBT approaches tend to focus on present-oriented phenomena, thoughts, behaviors, feelings, psychoanalysis tends to focus more on childhood kind of early attachments and early experiences. And so schema therapy is a really nice integration of these two approaches, but has a lot of science supporting it. Yeah. And yeah, Ellie, I appreciated the interview. I think as someone who was less familiar with schema therapy, I didn't ever do any training in schema therapy before. Um, But I still think as a clinician, you know, we always want to be learning and growing and staying updated on what's going on in the field. And not only that, as I listened to the episode that you two did together, I really just, there was some good food for thought for me in terms of some ideas for my practice. And it really, you know, I'd like to learn more about schema therapy and maybe do some training in it someday. But even just listening to the episode had me thinking. So I really appreciated that about this interview. Yeah. And I think that um, it it is sort of novel in terms of uh, being an approach that uh, really does go into go much more deeply into the patient's histories than a lot of the 
approaches that Debbie, you and I were trained in in graduate school. And I think it can be so useful. I mean, I think for, for me as a clinician, sometimes I find that the progress that I'm making in the therapy room, it really gets... Um, I hit a stuck point. And often the stuck point is because I haven't sort of addressed some of the underlying more historical elements that might have been uh, contributing factors to whatever the patient is currently experiencing. And what's so cool about schema therapy is that there's some really wonderful and very tangible um, strategies that you can use in the therapy room to kind of get at those early experiences. Um, so I think uh, I'm hoping that this will be a really educational um, episode for a lot of our clinicians who are listeners. Yeah, I think for me, I definitely, you know, I tend to take an ACT approach and and trained a lot in CBT. And so because those are my approaches, I tend, it's, I do sometimes talk about to clients about their childhood history. I think that can be relevant and important, especially in terms of the context of what we're seeing. But I don't spend a lot of time there. Typically, I spend more time focusing on their lives now. But this interview made me think that there might be times when actually delving deeper into that issue might actually be really important. And in fact, I'd say even in the last little bit of time since I listened to this interview, it's been a little bit more present on my mind as I do my work that that can be an important piece of it and that it can be worth delving into. Absolutely. Um, and Dr. Rodiger provides so many useful examples and really concrete strategies from his wonderful book in this episode. So let's take a listen. Hi, this is Dr. Yael Schoenbren, and I'm so excited to talk today with Dr. Eckhard Rodiger, a neurologist, psychiatrist, and therapist who's trained in both psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral therapy. And we'll be talking about his recently released book called Contextual Schema Therapy, an Integrative Approach to Personality Disorders, Emotional Dysregulation, and Interpersonal Functioning. Dr. Rodiger is the director of the Schema Therapy Training Center in Frankfurt, Germany, and we're currently talking, uh, I am in the U.S. and he's in Germany, um, so hopefully the call comes in clear. And Dr. Rodiger was the president of the International Society of Schema Therapy, or ISST, from 2014 to 2016, and he's currently treasurer. He has been a schema therapy trainer and supervisor since 2008, and he has authored numerous books book chapters, and articles on the topics uh, about schema therapy and related subjects. Welcome, Dr. Rudiger. Hi. Happy to talk with you today. We're so delighted to have you with us today to talk about the ins and outs of schema therapy, which is a unique approach that has shown high effectiveness among populations with hard-to-treat presentations. But before we dive into schema therapy, I actually was wondering if you'd be willing to give me a glimpse into the culture of therapy in Germany. In the U.S., therapy culture varies so much based on which region of the country in which you live, for example, whether you live in a rural or urban area. So I'm curious, um, how would you describe the overarching interest and comfort with therapy in Germany? What, what is the level of stigma around mental health and mental health treatment? Well... Compared to the rest of the world in Germany, we live in a kind of psychotherapy paradise because psychotherapy is refunded insurance companies up to 80 sessions. And beside that, there's a lot of inpatient treatment or day treatment available. And this gives us the chance to, to apply a lot of therapy without strong uh, limitations and we are very well aware that we are living and working under very privileged conditions and we are very thankful for them so wherever you are in germany you have a good chance to to get access to a therapist and get a good uh, scientifically based treatment is that right so so the yeah. um standard uh most people have available to them therapy and most therapists yeah. are trained in evidence-backed treatments? Yeah, there's a very high standard in treatment and we have long and intensive treatments. So every client can be quite sure that they get a really uh, sound treatment. They have to wait maybe for two or three months, but uh, then they get access to a real, uh, really elaborated and well-working treatment. And they can be quite sure that and it's not a kind of a bingo where you don't know what you get because everybody who has a license in Germany, an official license, is well-trained. That's amazing. That That's yeah. quite different than it is that's in the really, US. 
very, very different. As far yeah. as I know, the, the, the treatment conditions in the States or in most other countries in the world, this differs very, very much. It's like in Switzerland or maybe in Austria, but we, we are we're really in a kind of paradise here. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing to be able to do work in that kind of an environment where, uh, you know, you're surrounded by collaborators and colleagues who are well-trained and also you have a population who is familiar and and can access the kind of treatment yeah. that you know is going to be effective and, and worthwhile, worth their while. Yeah. yeah. And it creates a, a field where a, a lot of psychotherapy research is done and some of the new developments in psychotherapy are actually, actually now coming from Germany. Usually they all come from the States, but uh, especially, for example, in schema therapy, there is a lot of things going on and being developed in the Netherlands or in Germany. That's very cool. Yeah, so let's turn to talking about schema therapy. So I, I first learned about schema therapy some years ago. I don't want to age myself too much, but in graduate school, and I, you and I had been talking before I started the recording, that um, I was really trained in the original schema therapy model that was developed by Jeffrey Young in when he, de- uh, I think he first published his book. Uh, seminal book in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, but schema therapy has really continued to evolve. So I wonder if you could give us a larger view of where schema therapy fits into the broader evolution of psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to do that. I think schema therapy has always been connected with all the steps of the CBT development over the last almost 30 years. You mentioned the 1990 book in Sarasota Press that Jeff developed, and this is almost 30 years ago now. And things continue to develop. And I think the next important step, schema therapy, took was when Arnold Arns in the Netherlands started his big borderline study, and he was looking for a kind of um, reformulation of the model, uh, which is really easy to task, uh, to teach. So all the the therapists in the study were able to be well-trained and well-supervised in the model. And he focused on modes more than Jeff did. And so the, the Dutch uh, formulation of the schema therapy model differs to some extent to the original model that Jeff developed in the States. So schema therapy in Europe has another uh, presentation as the schema therapy in the States. I experienced that first when I came to Wendy B. Harris Institute in New York. I think it was in 2012 or something like that. And I realized that you are really trained slightly differently. And um, so uh, and now, we, with the next step, we the whole psychotherapy development took was this what um, Stephen Hayes originally called a third wave approach. Now, then he called it a more a contextual model. But the idea of meta uh, of a metacognitive approach in um, um, CBT, which is more or less obviously tainted by Buddhist thinking also happened in in schema therapy and there are beside me there are many more therapists who got infected by this idea which is much more than a therapeutic technique it's an attitude towards your thinking towards uh, your your emotions and i think the the act model developed by stephen hayes and his colleagues is a very very uh, well outworked um, uh, way to to integrate buddhist thinking into a scientific approach and we tried to connect this important step within the therapy development with the with what schema therapy can contribute in working on an emotional level and processing emotions and connecting um, current behavior with origins in the very early experiences in childhood which is not essentially part of CBT. It's more familiar with psychodynamic trainings that you regard the first two years as very, very relevant for the hard wiring of your brain. But in in, in cognitive therapy, it's not been part of the common thinking. And schema therapy, beside uh, working with emotions and the emotion focus, also integrates a biographical model to a comprehensive CBT model. So there is a lot coming together now, and we try to see schema therapy as something really tying things together that prove that have proven to be effective. And I think this is what makes schema therapy an interesting thing. Right, right. Well, I, I often tell people who have who are not familiar with schema therapy that I see it as 
cognitive behavioral therapist's response to what psychodynamic therapy used to offer because CBT has been such a present-oriented kind of approach that really works on the behaviors and the thoughts that you're having today and just challenging them. But sometimes that's really insufficient, especially for individuals who have had uh, very intense or traumatic early experiences or who have, for other reasons, developed very strong narratives or beliefs or um, physiological responses. And, And sometimes challenging or just shifting behavior it isn't sufficient to help people make real change. And so schema therapy offers a deeper um, approach that has a scientific backing and that kind of integrates some of what CBT offers, but in a way that can really get at some of those deeper narratives, those deeper earlier experiences that, that are harder to access for a lot of individuals. Yeah, I'm really happy that you put it that way because that's actually what we think too. Because, uh, for example, if you have DBT, they are very, very effective in managing emotions, training skills, bringing people in touch with their with a kind of an, an, a mindfulness. But very frequently, we had clients in our uh, inpatient treatment settings and also in, in outpatient treatments that say, okay, I learned to skill. I, I, I learned very much to manage my emotions, but I still don't understand. I can't make meaning to my past and to the way I am. And connecting current experience with these childhood experiences helps them to create a a functional narrative about their past. And this helps them to gain orientation right now and to to take their lives into their hands uh, to to bring it to a good end. So making meaning is part of what our brain is always doing. And this is something that Stephen Hayes pointed out in, in, in this relational frame theory. This is what our brain is always doing. And we can help clients to to find a reformulation of their narratives and their conceptual self, as the act people put it, and helps them to write a new story about the, how they are now and where, what they can try to be in future. And this is why schema therapy adds something to a, to a comprehensive therapy, fulfilling this need, making sense, and making meaning of your own life. Absolutely. Yeah, well, and I love how you pull in the acceptance and commitment therapy ideas in, in the way of making meaning, because I do think there uh, that it's so useful to understand how the brain works in terms of trying to understand things. Our brains are always, I mean, what really sets humans apart from other species is that we like to make stories. We, we like to create a narrative that helps us to understand the world inside of us as well as the world around us and how we relate to the world inside uh, to the world around us. Um, that's so much a part of how we function and it's um, yeah. also really uh, can inform the dysfunction that we might experience as well. Mm-hmm. So let's turn to talking more specifically about what schemas and schema therapy are all about. So I wanted to have you start by helping us to understand what what is a schema. I mean, how do you, you define it so at a couple of different levels in your book? So I wonder if you can kind of talk us through um, both, you know, the sort of at a more explicit level, how can we understand what a schema is? But also you go into some of the neurobiology, which I think is really interesting in terms of understanding how schemas form and how they're maintained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, a schema is a complex, frozen experience of the child's interaction with significant others that is stored in our implicit memory system. So, finally, they are like small video clips, and this is what um, different what different uh, what is different to to a classical cognitive approach. It also includes feelings. Um, it, it includes body sensations um, and impulses to react. And those uh, those scenes or these those video clips can deal with feelings of deprivation, feelings of shame, incompetence, vulnerability, are being abused in childhood. And these experiences are something that is stored in our memory system and tends to taint all our perceptions, appraisals, and tendency to react, like glasses you wear without being aware wearing them. It's natural to you. How do you, how do you articulate what the central goals of schema therapy are? So if you have somebody coming in who has clearly had some uh, you know, traumatic experiences from early childhood and have, has developed these, um, 
you know, small videos that are getting activated in various areas of their life, whether it's work or personal relationships and, and might be impeding their uh, pro- progress towards meaning making in life. Mm-hmm. What does schema therapy try to do at the end of successful schema therapy? What have you achieved? Well, the, the, there you can put it in, like in, in, in ACT, you can put it in three steps. The first thing is mode awareness. That means that you manage to step out of the current schema activation that you that appears primarily completely egocentric. You feel that that's the truth that you're experiencing. So this is why mindfulness is so important, because it helps people to get um, some kind of uh, epistemic mistrust towards your own beliefs. So you don't believe everything your mind tries to tell you. That's one of the Buddhistic sentences. And so first is to to develop a kind of observer mind towards your own emotions, towards your own thoughts. And then you can look at it, for, for example, like being in the shoes of your best friend. And this is what we actually train, and this is influenced by this uh, Buddhist background, to teach people just to take this perspective. And then you can label what you perceive, and then you can connect it with what you experience in imagery work, for example. Imagery work is so relevant because it gives you a vivid impression what actually happened in your past, as far as you remember it. It's not necessarily true, but it's what how you perceived your past. And if you connect the past experience with your present feelings, you can get an idea how much of the past is still intruding into your presence. And this helps you if you compare this with an adult perspective. We, we call it adult perspective. You can also call it a rational or functional perspective uh, that you can take uh, from an outside uh, point, uh, stance. Then you can reappraise your automatic thoughts and your automatic impulses with what is really helpful uh, in terms of need fulfillment or or being connected with your values. And this is the tipping point to make this re-decision to really understand what happened in the past and why you are so inclined to react that way. But then take an observer stance, put this all aside, take a new look and think what is really helpful for me to fulfill my needs now and to to find a course of life towards the future that helps me to have a better life mm-hmm. and step out of my life traps, not continue in my automatic pilot. So at the end of the day, uh, we try to, to make to bring people uh, in the situation that they can treat themselves or act towards themselves as good parents do or good friends do. So this is what we try to develop in schema therapy to build up an unhealthy adult mode, which is very much connected with with a contextual perspective and helps you to get out of your your, um, emotional states your automatic processing, and then regain flexibility to to get the head above the water of your emotional waves and then find direction towards a better life. Yeah. So if we were to come up with a a clinical example, so for example, if I um, had an early childhood experience where a parent who had some emotional difficulty, when I, as a child, would have my own emotional reactions, the parent would just kind of leave because it it unsettled them. And so I might develop an abandonment schema, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm going to be left if I have a strong uh, need for comfort. And so I I may find all sorts of ways of coping with that schema, that sense that I'm just going to be left. I might sort of avoid close connection or I may sort of overcompensate by just having, retaining a lot of control in, in close intimate relationships. And as somebody with an abandonment schema might discover late in life, you know, as you're developing intimate relationships, you might find that schema getting triggered. So if my partner comes home late one night or if he's in a bad mood and doesn't want to talk, all those kind of events might trigger my abandonment schema. And so as you're talking, I'm just sort of thinking through this example that you might help me to take off those glasses and sort of take a look at the way that 
that narrative had developed over time and the kind of response in me that it, the, both the physiological, the narrative, but also the behavioral responses that I might engage in to try to protect myself from the pain that would be caused by having that schema triggered. And so by taking off the glasses uh, and gain, gaining greater awareness, I might then work with you, my schema therapist, to try out some different kinds of behaviors, but also to um, you know, learn to soothe myself, myself in more appropriate ways in, instead of in maladaptive ways that kind of kept me stuck from uh, progressing and, and sort of enjoying my close relationships. Is that, is that kind of right? Yeah, I think you you point uh, or you put your finger in an important wound people have, because uh, what we put it that way that we try to separate the the behavior the front stage presentation on a behavioral level what what I call the automatic pilot before from the underlying emotions and beliefs especially the basic emotions that we call the child mode and the the automatic beliefs we call the critic modes because people feel as I mentioned already they feel completely egocentric with what they tend to do right now you for example feel very okay with assault your your partner why are you coming in so late and the problem is your partner only sees your front stage presentation the, the anger in your face and your behavior and they have no idea that there's a vulnerable child part with the schemas you experienced in the past on the backstage so getting people a sense that there are these two levels there's a front stage presentation there's something operating in the back which is not visible at first glance is an important step and um, the imagery techniques help us to to access the backstage level and you can for example do this in the presence of your partner before you started the recording we talked about couples therapy yeah. so it's so dramatic if you for example have an, an, an fighting couple and then you do the imagery with one partner for example with the one who is compensating its abandonment schema and then you let them float back into this, uh, this childhood scene where they were have been uh, left alone and the the basic emotions of fear or, or sadness pop up this immediately activates the caretaking system in the partner and they can encounter in a very very different way so uh, you can do this of course in individual sessions and then the therapist or the adult part of the client comes into the session and cares for these vulnerable feelings we call child mode but it's even more interesting to include the partner and, and take this part because this deeply reconnects people on an emotional level in, in their relationship. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and I think that in lots of ways, couples therapists try to get to the vulnerable side of, mm-hmm. uh, of harder emotions that might come out between yeah. partners. And this is such yeah. an effective way where you're yeah. really sort of getting underneath what's causing that reaction. What is that underlying schema yeah. that's getting triggered from what the partner may, say, may see as yeah. a very innocuous kind of a behavior, yeah. you know, coming home late while I was just working late. Why, why does it uh, cause yeah. such a strong reaction? Um, but by understanding the root cause of of what is getting triggered that really does help the partner who um, doesn't ha- who hadn't been understanding that strong reaction to gain a better understanding and to feel a, a softer and more connected um, yeah. as as the primary patient might be working through that mm-hmm. yeah we actually believe that if if in all our encounters if we get in touch with the underlying core needs they are all the same. They are unique all over the world, and we can connect on our need levels as well as we connect as we can connect on our value levels. And this is actually a misfit between two people. If we encounter the other person not the way as it is right now, but based on our projections, this distorts our interactions naturally. So stepping back finding a conceptualization of what is happening right now then put it aside reconnect with your needs and values and then um, approach the other person again based on this uh, rebalanced flexible adult state leads to much better results and this happens in in personal relationships this happens in working relationships within the families and this is why this approach is so helpful for many kind of interactions yeah and we suffer under dysfunctional interactions right and misunderstandings right 
Yeah. I, I always like to think too about like the interactions that we have with ourselves because I think for most of us, we often have a dialogue going on inside yeah, about exactly. what's happening, a narrative that sort of explains it in a way of relating to ourselves. So I think schema therapy is really powerful in sort of taking a step back and saying, huh, why did I have such a strong reaction? What am I saying to myself? And, um, you know, how can I sort of understand that, uh, understand what the words are that I'm saying to myself, but also like what's sort of giving rise to it, that deeper level of um, sort of that that schema level. So you talk a lot in your book about modes and mode awareness. And so in Mm -hmm. addition to this idea of the schemas themselves, that seems to be a really integral part of what you uh, try to address in schema therapy. So I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about um, what are modes and then how do you help somebody to become more aware of those different modes? Yeah. I already mentioned the most important groups of modes. A mode basically is what appears in the present moment based on underlying schemas and automatic schema coping. So if you have a mode, you cannot directly understand what the schema behind it is because the way you deal with your schema, for example, if you surrender to it, then it appears different than if you uh, compensate it because a compensation, you, you, you made the example that of a feeling of vulnerability, which is a, a vulnerable child mode, can appear in a very angry way on front stage in terms of a bully. Uh, accusing your partner because you learn to compensate with your vulnerability. And this is why we have to first label the modes and then step back to what is the experience behind it. So especially with with coping modes, we have to sort out the beliefs, which are called critic modes, because our belief system operating in the background contributes to a coping mode. For example, if you develop the belief, I, uh, um, I deserve being important, I deserve being informed if my f- a friend comes in late, this is something that you uh, just deeply trust in and you think that's adequate. But in, in schema therapy, for example, we would call this a critic mode, the voice in the head, and we would put it on an extra chair. And despite if it's right or wrong or true or false, we look at the effects of these voices. And so working with modes help you to find a formulation, a case formulation, where you can sort out uh, the emotional parts and the beliefs from the presented coping behavior. So let's continue with this example. We can put or let's let's take another example, which is maybe easier. If you have a critic mode voice in your head saying, if you don't learn enough, you will fail the test. Or in your case, if my friend comes in late, he probably won't love me. That's comparable. But let's take the, the, the sentence with the failing the test. This might be true if you just look at the content. And this is something we learned from uh, the metacognitive perspective. It's better or more helpful to look at the effects of a thought than on the content itself. So this brings us back to functional contextualism as an extension that is incorporated in our contextual schema therapy therapy approach compared to conventional schema therapy or conventional CBT. Because if you take the sentence, if you don't learn enough, you will fail the test, you can put it on on the chair for the critic mode and then you can put the child mode chair in front of this critic mode chair, you sit beside the client and ask the client to to speak this sentence out towards the empty child chair. And the interesting thing is that the the client can perceive the ego synchronicity of this thought. They really buy into these beliefs. And that's important that they experience how vivid and how convincing these thoughts appear on first glance. And before they feel too comfortable on this chair, <laughs> we ask them to change to the other side and then they have to sit on the child mode chair. We again sit beside or slightly behind them to give them a kind of a backup. We are, on, we are always on their side. And then we ask them to feel, close the eyes, feel inside the body and ask them, how does this sentence make you feel? Independent on the content, just how does it make you feel? And they feel under pressure, they feel suppressed, because usually it's not only the belief itself, it's all also the way how the voice appear in the head. They appear very demanding, very pushing. 
And once and it's like pushing a, a, a swing. First, we go to the belief side, and the people can really dive into these beliefs. And then we push the swing and ask them to go to the emotional side. And then we ask them, how does that make you feel? And then they feel bad. And then we ask them, what do you need now? And it's easy for them to perceive that they need support, uh, a kind of um, relief from these pushing voices. And then instead of discussing that, we stand up together, take an observer perspective and ask the client from this observer perspective floating above the chair, how, what do you feel looking at these voices beating up this child or putting pressure on this child? And then they can easily feel kind of an anger towards these voices because they see the effects. They develop a kind of a compassion for this vulnerable part. And then they can use, make, make use of this constructive anger to push these voices back and maybe put the chair out of the room in a symbolic um, let go gesture. And then we ask them, how, how do you feel looking at this childlike part down there, feeling under pressure, feeling exhausted, feeling so, so weak? And then they say, yeah, I feel pity because our brain is hardwired with these systems to, to, to support people we love and to, to fight people uh, uh, putting friends or, or siblings under pressure. So this is not an intellectual process. We create a scene that really activates the emotions on a biological level. And so we go with the flow and this is more, it's much easier for the client to, to, to do these perspective changes if you really um, set the stage this way with these body movements that they really change the perspectives and then automatically adequate thoughts and emotions pop up. So you don't have to teach them all this new stuff. You can draw back on the resources they already have. Because we all have these resources when we are in an, in an adult state, for example, caring for our children or in a work situation, we can really behave as an adult as long as we are not in a schema activation. Mm -hmm. So sorting the schema activations out on, an, on a coping mode chair, draw back to, this, to the critic mode beliefs. And there are also some schemas behind that, like unrelenting standards or punitiveness or things like that. But they show up in, a, in terms of a critic mode voice. And then you, and the third parts are these emotional states with schemas of emotional deprivation or incompetence, the first two domains behind it. So you can connect the schemas with the modes they appear in. And then you can work with the modes the way I tried to indicate it in the last minutes. Yeah, that's such a great example of how you really integrate the schemas. And how we the, work with them. Yeah. And how you work with them. And then the, the modes and the mode awareness and then the basic emotions and coping styles. And you're sort of in this example in the therapy room activating it, but sort of in a really different way than it happened when the schemas were initially developed. And you talk a lot in your book about sort of the, you know, the importance of activating this schema, but sort of within the client's emotional tolerance window. So in this very caring, careful way, because a lot of learning can happen when there is some activation, but if there's too much activation, it, it's a lot harder for people to perform. You and I were actually just talking about that before we started the recording, that your English is quite good when your anxiety is sort of within a particular window. And, and and I do these podcasts much better when my anxiety is in a particular uh, window. But when it goes too high, our performance might go down. And the same thing goes for schemas, that if we're sort of in a tremendous amount of pain, it's hard for learning to happen. And that's uh, a place where the therapist is really integral in sort of making sure that the client is ha experiencing some activation so that new learning can happen so that they can um, sort of witness the scheme is being activated, all the voices that are happening, all the mode uh, styles and coping styles that are occurring, uh, and then try to engage in some learning of how to do it differently, but to do that within a particular window that isn't sort of overly painful or overly uh, elevated. Yeah, that's pretty true. And this is the challenge for the therapist to balance the therap 
fee relationship in a way that always keep the client in the tolerance window. And um, unlike many other therapies, we really think that if clients are out of their emotional tolerance window, they are no longer able to perform as an healthy adult person so for example if you look at dbt the dbt always thinks there's an adult person inside an adult looking person in front of you but we think there's a child mode operating inside an adult looking person and we treat this adult uh, this childlike state as we would treat a real child and this is what we call reparenting and, and this is why, especially borderline clients, like schema, therapy, schema therapy very much and stay in the treatment. The dropout rates are really low in schema therapy because we offer these childlike clients what they need. And this is the first part of therapy. So we care to keep them in the tolerance window. We offer support. We show them uh, how they could do things. We make suggestions. Would uh, you take them as, at the hand as you do it with, with smaller children? But immediately when the adult functioning level appears, we step back and give the lead to them, pass the baton to them, and ask them to, to make use of their resources. And this is the, the empathic confrontational part. We, we don't do anything the client can do by themselves. But so if they tend to, to, to lean back and let us do the work, we, we challenge them and ask them to get more active. So constantly we try to balance uh, and keep them in the tolerance window. I love so much of that, but one of the things that I had planned to ask you about that you're kind of diving into, which I think is such an important point, is is the nature of the therapist-client relationship. Now, in a lot of CBT therapies, um, there isn't that much attention given to it. I mean, I think there's certainly attention g given always to the therapist being a warm and supportive and empathic, mm -hmm. non-judgmental person, but schema yeah. therapy really goes into a lot of detail about the way that the therapist-client relationship can serve the th this can can provide a lot of leverage and a lot of the therapeutic action in therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so you talked just now about sort of this idea of limited reparenting, which I think is a really interesting idea. But there's um, a couple of other areas that you talk about in your book um, in terms of the therapist helping to provide corrective emotional experiences. Mm -hmm. And one that I think is really interesting and that is sort of DBT-like, which is the therapist working to set limits and give uh, practice to a client who may not have had a lot of those kind of comfortable or, or really positive learning experiences with um, somebody who was in a care give a role, setting limits in an appropriate way. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about uh, different ways that schema therapy uses the therapeutic relationship to help the patient. Yeah, um, yeah. to, to make a, a clear point here, we believe that most clients give their best, if we give our best too. So if the clients feel truly cared for in the reparenting phase of the therapy, this works like a kind of glue. And we are sitting close to the clients, accompany them in their deepest feelings, validate all the feelings. Um, and uh, then we take a clear stance towards their over-demanding or punitive critic modes like good parents do for the children's. Um, and they can reach out for us between the session, for example, when they are really in trouble. So this, is, this shows them that within the boundaries of a professional relationship, of course, they feel that they mean something to us and that, that it's a real relationship. They matter and we care for them. And our attachment system provides us with a clear sensor about that. So clients are thankful for what we do for them. And thus therapists achieve a kind of credit allowing us to challenge the clients later. So to some extent, they want to pay back and get active, not to disappoint us, um, just like children do. And we believe in the inborn will of the clients to give the best they can once we identified and sorted out the interfering critic mode beliefs. And I admit that this is a very positive view in human nature, but this is underlying our schema therapy model. So we are not completely naive because uh, there is some research indicating that these inborn pro-social traits to be cooperative 
uh, helped to contribute uh, that mankind survived in, in, in the past. Right. But it's 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 not you, you know we we are not there there is a certain risk and maybe we come back to that later that therapists do too much and especially for example with traumatized clients uh, therapists based on their own schemas tend to to feel in charge to care for everything so in in the first phase of therapy we offer a lot of support but we are always uh, aware if the clients really do the best they can but if you give them something they you, you it's much easier to ask for a contribution from their side yeah? if you stay too detached it's like uh, uh, like being on a seesaw and nobody wants to move and this this can lead to a very stuck situation in therapy and we try to create a good momentum in schema therapy with some optimism in the beginning, encouraging the client, uh, conveying some, some trust that we can make uh, things better. And then we try to activate the clients with stepwise taking a more active role. And this, this positive atmosphere um, leads to the low dropout rates that we have compared to all other borderline treatments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is such a powerful piece of schema therapy, which is, you know, sort of the emphasis placed on building a, a very uh, genuine relationship between the therapist and the patient um, mm -hmm. that is a genuinely caring uh, mutual relationship, and, and that can be a very powerful tool in therapy. Uh, and, and I think that uh, the way that you talked about it really brings that to life. One of the other um, recently added uh, elements of schema therapy is one I love because it's in keeping with the positive psychology movement. You just made reference to sort of creating this positive environment in the therapy room. Um, so, you know, while a therapist and a patient might work on, on what Jeff Young used to call the early maladaptive schemas, you also talk in your book about working on positive schemas. So I wonder if you can talk a bit about why, why that might be important. Yeah, well, um, I have to admit that we don't buy too much into the concept of positive schemas because, and some colleagues do more of that. Okay. Um, well, I think that, um, oh, but in positive schemas finally play an important role. Um, but usually the positive experience are not that significant as the situations of need frustration are leading to negative schemas. Um, uh, maybe I can compare it with, with the air around us. As long as you get enough of it, you're not so much aware of it. Uh, once you, you, you tend to suff suffocate, uh, you know how much you needed something. <laughs> sure. So um, I think all patients bear some strengths, some strengths <laughs> Sorry, we can make use of in therapy. We call them resources usually. Um, and some of them might be blocked by critic modes or concealed by maladaptive automatic coping behavior. And in therapy, we try to stop the automatic behavior and identify and sort out the critic modes in order to unblock resources like constructive anger or an innate compassion for yourself, which is not um, uh, maladaptive if you love yourself to some right. extent. But if you listen to the critic mode voices, they tell us, oh, don't be so selfish. So there is a lot of things to be reappraised, but if we if we go back to this backstage level and really look for the needs and sort out the critic mode uh, voices, then you can release innate strengths of the clients, and you can of course call this positive schemas. And it makes at the end of the day, and I think this is why you like this term, we have to go with the resources. And many people have them. The problem is not that they don't have the resources. The problem is that they are blocked. So much work is focusing on these blocking critic mode beliefs and automatic maladaptive behavior traits. Mm. People can do much better if you uh, unblock uh, their, their resources and allow them to, to do what they can. Right. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to... Uh, talk through some of the strategies that you use in schema therapy. You talked about some of the chair techniques that you use, and, and, mm -hmm. and you go into yeah. a lot of detail uh, about those in the book, and, and those are really mm -hmm. interesting. Um, I, I jotted down a couple of notes about other uh, strategies that you describe in the book, and um, 
you can talk about any of these, but uh, I wrote down integrating levels of cognition, inducing mm -hmm. mode change, rescripting traumatic events, using yeah. imagery, future directed, safe place, childhood mm -hmm. imagery, or farewell imagery, and then yeah. a, a variety of behavioral strategies. So, for example, looking for alternative approaches, using mindfulness, self care, self compassion. I'm curious. When you sort of think about the therapy that you offer or, or when you're supervising, what are the strategies that you find yourself uh, defaulting to most often? Yeah, we make use of all these strategies that you mentioned, and I think the, the, this uh, podcast won't give us time to go into them in detail. There are videos on, on our website uh, which d show a lot of, especially these chair dialogues, and the example I, I made in, in earlier in this podcast might be too complicated to follow it just by listening. But when you see the video and you can look at much more materials, then you can get an idea how this actually works yeah and we but can link it, to those videos through our yeah, website yeah. yeah that would be nice and another very important uh, second technique we make intensive use of is is imagery work and imagery scripting because uh, when you do imagery you give people the chance to actually float back in time and connect in a very intensive vivid way with the past experience that are still operating in the background of their present feelings and so imagery helps us to get in touch with the interpersonal painful situations in our past that still influence us today. And this is why we use it for uh, traumatic events too. And it gives us the chance to, to enter the stage with the adult state the client is in now together with a therapist at their side, taking a new look at the situation. So it's not about changing history, but it's about changing the meaning the people made in the past and the childhood of these experiences, that they felt completely helpless, that they had the feeling this will never change. And now when we enter these images, we can change them actually and bring them to a better outcome in terms of scripting. But the point is not to change what happened in the past. We can do that, of course. But to show them, you can take a new stance. You can, you have a lot of resources, and now you can make use of it to rescript re the event and bring it to a better end. And this is the, the 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 baseline of our work. And so chair dialogues work with the inner world of the client today in terms of inner voices are. Child mode feelings they have now, while imagery always gives you an access to what ha what happened in the past. So you can combine these techniques, and every time you want to bring uh, the bring the client to the experience that there's always a past level present in their in uh, current feelings, you do an imagery. For example, if you have a chair dialogue and they get in touch with these feelings of hopelessness, you can ask them to close their eyes, float back in time, and then they immediately can access the scenes behind the present feelings of vulnerability. And for example, if, you're, if you take the, the, the example you made with your friend, if you have a couple in the session and you get into your anger, and you float back, you can get in touch with the, the little child inside of you who has been left alone by the parents. And then you can work with this child mode or with these feelings and address them to your partner. So imagery is always helpful to connect with the underlying schemas and the, the world inside. And chair dialogues are helpful to, to reorganize and rebalance your present systems between your beliefs and your emotions and how you can replace automatic maladaptive coping with flexible, healthy adult functional coping. So these are the most important techniques. And another one that is very interesting is to work with the therapy relationship and the in-session sequences because personality disorders are characterized by maladaptive interpersonal behavior. That's what makes them a disorder. And in therapy, these, um, uh, these scripts happen again. So the, the client do with us what they do with all the other people. And so therapy is kind of a laboratory where you can see their scripts and you can work with them. And this is when we make use of this standing up position. And then you can look down on the chairs of the therapist and the client and you can form a reflecting team coming from a systemic approach, but you can perfectly match it with schema therapy model. 
And from an observer stance, you can look down and can discuss and induce mentalization about the states in the client and the states in the therapist. And you can put everything in place. You can connect it with the mode model, take a new stance and can decide what, what ways a client can take which road he can take to express his real needs and the therapist can contribute with their feelings replacing the feelings of other people in other interactions outside and we can bring this experience of the therapist in a very gentle and non-confrontative way and add this to the agenda and bring this into the laboratory when we are in the standing up position. For example, you can ask, are you interested how the therapist feels if um, the client acts this way? And then you can bring it on the table and clients can integrate it into, integrate this into their um, strategies. Yeah, that's such a great um, approach to helping people become more aware of what it is that's happening internally, yeah. right? Because as you sort of described this this sense of like ego syntonic ways yeah. that things play out is that we we're just not even aware what we're saying to ourselves or or why it is that we're reacting so strongly. But by taking some of these very behavioral in in session approaches of having yeah. people kind of take a step back like literally take a step yeah. back and take a look and wonder together with you, the therapist, about mm -hmm. what it is that's happening internally and interpersonally, it really does give um, some good perspective, yeah. some useful perspective. Our perspective completely narrows down when we are very much in a highly emotional state. And we've, it feels right, but once we open the scope again, and this standing up position is so helpful doing that, it's clear that we are we don't have a complex picture and so this is this is our way to to change between a self in process as the act people calls it with a contextual self in terms of an observer perspective by taking the standing up position <laughs> i really wonder why other therapists in other therapy approaches don't make use of these simple techniques which derive from psychodrama of course but to make it real in the therapy room and other therapies for example transverse focus therapy they have a model with parts of the self as well but they they do it all on a cognitive um, in cognitive movements in a face-to-face -face position. And this is very challenging for clients. And if you play it out in the room with separate chairs and standing up, looking down, changing sides, this makes it easier uh, to induce mental movements if you induce physical movements. So some, some things we do are quite simple. And I think one of the contributions of schema therapy, and especially Jeffrey Young, was to, to break up some... Uh, some do's and don'ts and we started to to be exper experiential and experimental and just do what seems obvious and helpful yeah and i think this is one of the secrets why schema therapy is effective that we just do what is promising to to reach the best results yeah well, and, and I'll sort of um, turn us to a last question because I think that this is another thing that you talk about in your book that I think is not um, discussed as much as it should be in most uh, therapy manuals, which is therapist self-care. <laughs> Why uh, You have an entire chapter on therapist schemas and therapist self-care. Um, and, and I think that that's just really lovely because as a therapist, I, you know, I, it sort of goes without saying that you take on a lot and you work really hard for the welfare of your patients and it can be challenging work. And so I'm, I'm curious um, sort of if you could tell us a little bit about why that's so important and what it is that you recommend for therapists who yeah. are offering schema therapy to, to patients. Yeah, like you already pointed out, we have our schemas ourselves, of course. And most of us have some kind of um, emotional frustrations in the back. And all of us have unrelented standards. This is the entry card to a, un to a university career, of That's course. That's right. I, can, I, and, I admit I have one of those. <laughs> yeah. And, this, and, and if this leads to a self-sacrificing schema, which is very prevalent among therapists, you are vulnerable to, to burnout and to abusive clients. So we have to teach uh, therapists to apply the model on ourselves and this is one of the best news that if you really do it with yourself first you get very very 
experienced in applying the model on everyday life situations, and this is helpful for therapy, you are a good model how to balance your life, how to balance support and confrontation in a good way. And uh, finally, you are more effective in your therapy because you have a roadmap where to go and you're so familiar with it because you do it uh, every day with yourself. And so treat being good with yourself, being good with your clients, being good with your partners or your workplace colleagues is, is one thing. And it's much better than uh, drinking water and preaching wine to, <laughs> to the clients and help them more than you help yourself. So it's fair and it's, it feels good yeah. doing that. I love it. Well, thank you so much um, for sharing your wisdom with us. We will link to your books, um, especially, uh, we'll link to a number of your books, but we'll certainly link to Contextual Schema Therapy, your most recent book with your mm -hmm. two co-authors, Bruce Stevens and Robert Brockman. Um, and we'll link to your website. Um, uh, are there other places for listeners to find out more about you and your work? Well, I think these are the... the um, you get most there on the website. There's a lot of materials and you can, there's a blog and you can send emails to me and I can answer to questions and then we can uh, stay connected. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Psychologists Off the Clock. We thank you so much for, for honoring us with your time. Oh, thank you for this interview. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. 